Hello everyone, it's Oliver Turnbull here from The Wine List. Uh, this is episode six and I'm with, as usual, my friend who I've known for decades, Richard Lane. Hello Richard. Oh, hello Oliver, fancy seeing you here. <laughs> We've been sat here for about two hours. Uh, but we, we haven't had a drink yet, so the uh, title of this episode, a working title, but I think it's quite a good title, is Simply Red. Uh, so you can imagine, yes, you can imagine what uh, that entails. But Richard, could you, yeah, give us a bit more of an outline of what we're going to cover today? Ooh, I wonder if it's going to be a focus on red wine ah, with a yes. title like Simply Red, maybe. And does that mean I've got to put on a kind of funny Benny hat? And, 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 and is that isn't what the guy from that Simply Red podcast? Yeah, you'll have to grow uh, about three feet of uh, curly ginger hair and put on a Manchunian accent and be a bit chippy. Was that Mr. Michael Hucknell? Mr. Michael Hucknell, yeah. Ah, yes. Good, good band. I used to like those in about 1989, I think. It don't matter what I look like, girls like me because I can sing. Ah, right. Okay. So we'll do some Simply Red because mainly, Oliver, as we've you tasted plenty of red wine in the first season and in, already in season two, but the reality is it's still not quite your comfort zone. I still feel as though you're a bit edgy about it. And I thought if we really explore hearing Gordon's from their own wine list, many different styles of red wine, talk about it, explain how they're made, you understand how they're tasting, the structural characteristics, then I think you're going to feel much more in a comfort zone that isn't just white wine. It would be a terrible uh, error to just leave out that completely and I think I've dipped my toe in the water. I like the water, it feels warm and welcoming. So yeah, I'm ready, more than ready, to get immersed in the world that is Vin Rouge. Right, let's order the Gordon's wine list and we will start. Okay, we have a feast in front of us. We have three reds, which you've chosen. We went through the wine list earlier, um, and we've got three, and we've we've gone for a light, a medium, and a more full body, which makes a lot of sense, right? I think so, and we're, we're being, again, faithful to Gordon's Wine Bar, our host for season two, because the way Gordon's, according to their wine list, sort of categorise or classify the reds, as you've just said, light, medium, and, and, and full. And in a way, that's quite helpful, I guess, just so we can have three contrasting styles of red wine. Remember, the main reason for this episode, Ol, is to get you and, if not our listeners, um, more comfortable, if you like, with what red wine is. I mean, we all know what red wine is. It's red rather than white. But, but you know, going beyond the colour, what is it? And also, what is it that you don't like about red wine? Because obviously, up until we started doing the podcast, you're still naturally leaning towards a glass of white, which is fine if that's your thing. And now you have other friends who, for whatever reason, just can't get on with red wine, and not everyone can. I thought it's just worth exploring red wine a bit more. What is it? A little bit of a revision from season one about how, uh, how it's made how, and what the difference of red wine making is compared with white wine making, but also the black grape varieties that make red wine. Probably for this exercise, we're going to be referring to grape varieties as if they were kind of like single varietals so the wines we're tasting maybe will just have one black grape variety giving us the style of that red wine though of course in reality as we know many red wines like many white wines are blends of different grape varieties and that's fine too maybe we should touch on that too because actually blending in places like Bordeaux that we've discussed is really important because 
different black grape varieties bring different things to the party and the blending of them means that the whole is more than some of the parts sort of thing. So there's a, we can have that discussion too. But before we get to that point, Ol, I thought it was just really important. We've been through the list, what we've got from the Gordon's list. We've got a Beaujolais Village, wine number one. Wine number two is a Côte du Rhône. And then our third wine is a Nero d'Avola, so in Sicily. But the reason we're tasting it is because the wine style, according to the Gordon's people, is fuller. Let's check there, right? I'm sure they are. Who am I to say they're not? We'll also be tasting something from the new world as well to, to finish this flight. But the point is, you, Oliver, just getting a bit more comfortable. There's no, no white wine to discuss here. It's all about red. Why don't you tell us about what you don't like about red wine? I find them now, latterly, a bit sort of heavy and sort of headachey, if you like, and a bit hangovery. Uh, not that I drink to excess or anything like that. And I just quite like the freshness of white wine, and I, I like a chilled drink. Also, what I found is when we went through the wine, as choosing, obviously the final decision pretty much came down to you. It was quite interesting in terms of um, how I would attack a wine list, which is what this podcast was all about originally, which is an unconfident uh, white male in his mid-50s from England who really should be able to tackle a, tackle a wine list, and I wasn't able to. So it's quite useful going through when we were trying to decide on a more uh, lighter wine, which other ones we considered. So we considered, did we not have... Um, uh, a simple Bordeaux, a Pinot Noir, a Malbec. A couple of points. One is you've made great strides on. You're no longer a non-confident man in his mid-50s. You're now a non-confident man in his late 50s. Just to clarify that. You just made a really interesting point there. What is meant by body? Because actually the biggest contributor to body in red wine is alcohol and tannin. So any of those grape varieties can be on the lighter side or heavier side depending on where they're made. Now some grape varieties will lend themselves to being a bit fuller bodied because they can only grow in places that are really warm because some grape varieties will only ripen in warm climates. And the reason all that you tend to find black grapes that make red wines obviously, you find black grapes in warmer climates is that we need to use, remember our theory from season one, we obviously need the skins, the black grape skins, to make our red wine, to give us the colour. And what's the other important component of skins? Ah, it'll be the tannin, Rich. It'll be Mr. T, Mr. T, the tannins, Mr. Turnbull. Oliver Tannin, Oliver Turnbull, exactly. Um, And that's frankly, question number one in a way answered, that you you forgot to ask me, which is why in places like Northern France, Southern England, we don't really find much red wine, is because actually, frankly, the climate is not warm enough to guarantee that the tannins contained in the skins of the grapes, which will be extracted when the red wine is made because we need the skins to give us the color, the tannins would not be ripe enough from cooler countries. And the biggest no-no, the biggest sin in the red wine making world is to have unripe tannins as well as unripe fruit that tastes too herbaceous and not fruity enough. Absolutely horrid. And that's why climate dictates that we need kind of middle of France, south of France, Spain, Italy, South Africa, Australia, California, Chile, etc. Argentina with your Malbec, where we've got more sunshine, more ultraviolet, more warmth, is going to give us more of a kind of insurance policy that the tannins in the skins of the grapes can get ripe. And once we've got ripe tannins, 
we should also have lovely ripe fruity flavours which is going to give us a much better chance of making a really decent red wine. So the very, very broad brush stroke you tend to find the heavier wines, the more alcoholic wines, the more tanniny wines coming from a, the warmer climates. Is that is that right? That is something you can pretty much say. The only caveat to that is we also need to understand that some grape varieties, some black grape varieties, will have naturally higher levels of tannins than other grape varieties. I know why. I know why. Why's that? Let me guess. Thickness of the skin. Oh, well done. <laughs> Never had you down as a thick-skinned person, Oliver, but well, well done. Frankly, the thicker the skin of the grape, the, the, the greater the amount of tannins that need to be managed, actually, because right. people, consumers don't like tannins. Yeah. And, um, you know, tannins are a marvellous thing if you want to age your wine for 10, 20 years, like your dad's claret, because tannins can soften and are associated with real complex development of wines from bottle aging. Most people are drinking red wines when the red wines are quite young and people do not want unapproachable red wines that have high levels of tannin. So the thing you've got to think about if you're making red wine is, number one, where am I, where am I in the world? Can I make red wine? Is it warm enough to get the tannins right? Number two, which grape varieties am I using? Because some are going to be more tannic than others. And number three, as the winemaker, and this is the clever bit, how much tannin do I want to extract? Because it's not just a case of, oh, well, I've got Cabernet Sauvignon, so therefore, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I've just got a really always a high level of tannins, although generally speaking, that is true. The point is, as a winemaker, you can, you can finesse how much tannin you extract by the, the clever winemaking you do. And if you want to extract lots of tannins, to make a wine to lie down for decades, to make a really complex wine that will taste amazing in 20 years' time, you'll extract lots of tannins in the winery by using high temperatures, lots of soaking of skins and wine and stuff to get everything out of the grapes as possible, even though they will be pretty undrinkable ah. for a few years. And that's you mean extract the tannins from the skin into the wine. Yes. So the wine is tanniny, which will be quite hard to drink when it's young, but you'll get the bonus 10, 20 years later when it will be a phenomenal vintage claret, and that's why they're so expensive as well, I guess, because you've got to age them for so long. Because time is money, you've got to use oak barrels and leave ah, them hanging around, and winery is not making sense. money, and you're not getting your return on your, your, your winemaking back for many, many years. So all these prices are passed on to the consumer, obviously. So it's all about, definitely it's about climate and where you are, but it's also about the great variety in terms of naturally how acidic, how tannic are they. The climate is going to dictate more the alcohol level, although some grape varieties have a tendency to high alcohol, which we'll discuss as we look at these three wines. And then the other variable, of, just to simplify it to four or five, there are probably about 5,000, 5, <laughs> is as the winemaker, how do I want to make the wine? If I want to make a wine that's really fruity and accessible, I will do limited extraction of tannin, skin contact in the winery, um, so I can make a wine that's predominantly fruit forward, less tannic, less skin contact oriented. But do you know what? It's not going to age as well. It doesn't matter because I want to make loads of this fruity wine and I want to sell it all next year. Thank you very much. So let me go back to what I think I've learned. I'm absolutely fascinating and, and I'll, I'll uh, distill it down to stuff that I can take on in one go. Red wines and white wines are different. Red wines, of course, have the skin yep. uh, involved in the winemaking process. And the process, colour. And, the and colour. of course the colour. 
and light wines to heavy wines are mostly or largely dictated by alcohol content and tannin content. Correct. Uh, both those things, the main variable is the climate under which the what grapes were grown and the wine was made and the type of grape because you can get a high tannin grape with a thick skin and you can control the process of how much tannin a wine has which might you might want a little bit of tannin drink it immediately we might want a lot of tannin for a wine that you want to age exactly that's kind of what i've heard that's a very good summary of and, pe- and people are thinking well hang on why do you just want to age your wine because again just to be clear it's the tannins which when they, they soften with age we're talking many years decades sometimes it's the tan it's the tannins ability to soften in the wine that is also associated with all sorts of chemical reactions going on, which causes lovely, complex, what we call tertiary aromas to develop in the wine. That complexity may start in the winery before the wine is bottled, because the winemaker chooses, for example, to put the wine into oak barrels for two years before they put them into bottles, because they want maybe to get some oaky, vanilla, cedar, spicy character into the wine fine more variables please more variables please more variables and complication and we understanding this bloody thing yeah exactly and the other crucial thing i won't push it the technology any further at this point the other thing that oak barrels do in the winery maturation is called in oak barrels oak barrels are watertight wine tight so the wine safe but not oxygen proof so a little bit of oxygen gets into the wine for however long it's matured in oak barrels before it is bottled, and the oxygen getting in through the walls of the oak barrel into the wine starts to soften and polymerize, if you're a chemist, the tannins to make them more soft, more pliable, and potentially, you know, something that's gonna be much better to taste further down the line. Wow, yet another set of compromises your winemaker needs to think about. When you say the oxygen go, is porous to oxygen, it's not just the oxygen coming in that's making them mature. Time itself is making them mature as well. Oxygen over, over a period of time. Yeah. I, I didn't realise that was so hilarious. But that's obviously one of the funniest thing that I've ever said. I thought, I thought, I thought that, that gag about, about um, oak barrels letting oxygen in, absolute humdinger. Uh, that's it, brought the house down. I must uh, remember that, remember that. Why did you go for the Beaujolais? So this is the lighter one. Uh, light bodied, it's funny though, uh, in terms of alcohol content, it's still 13%, which is higher than a lot of white wines. And the a more heavy bodied wine uh, comes in at 14%. So it's quite marginal in a sense, isn't it? Absolutely it is, Ol. And you're already picking on something really important here, which is alcohol. Okay, um, just a general point for we discussed the Beaujolais. Alcohol is directly related as you and listeners, I think, are getting now, directly related to how much sugar accumulates as the grapes are ripening in the vineyard before the winemaking. The greater the amount of sugar in your grapes, if you're making a dry wine, you ferment the wine, the sugars, you crush the grapes, you make the wine. In red wines, you use the skins to get the color and the tannin. The amount of sugar in those grapes in the vineyard directly tell you how much alcohol you're going to produce in that wine. And because, obviously, of climate change, I say obviously, I don't think there are many climate change deniers now. I mean, Donald Trump and probably a few of his cronies still. But you've only got to look at wines in this millennium. 
in the 21st century and look at their alcohol levels to appreciate how much warmer vineyards are getting in the summer. No, really? Yeah. That's a legitimate proxy. Yep. In your view, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's unequivocal, um, I, I suppose. mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Oh, um, we'll pick it up again when we talk about the Cote Jerome. But going back to the Beaujolais, and you said, well, the alcohol's 13. I'm glad, actually, the alcohol's 13 old, because, funnily enough, I, I popped into a little Beaujolais snifter tasting this morning, and some of the Beaujolais, I tasted some Beaujolais there that were 14.5%. Right, this is your point exactly, right? Right, because normally these guys were struggling to get to 12%. Because below 12, what? Wine, well, but below 12, you're losing a bit of body. Right, yes, yes. Below 12 is implying the sh you, the, you didn't get enough sugars going on, obviously to give you the 12% in the first place, but in parallel to the sugars, the, the assumption is that the phenolic maturation of the grapes, the actual aromas and flavours, that when these, these, the grapes are crushed and the juice is fermented, these chemicals called thiols and terpenes, these chemical compounds that give us the flavours of cherries and plums, because we're not literally talking about cherries and plums, but the flavours of cherries and plums. Oh yeah, exactly, as we said before. Yeah. yeah um, we wouldn't be getting them because the grapes wouldn't have been ripe enough. So, ah. so phenolic, phenolically, and phenolic ripeness, it seems to go in parallel to sugar accumulation in the grapes. If you haven't got the sugar accumulation because the vintage is cool, or frankly just the climate's cooler, then you're not going to have the phenolic, the flavours there as well. That's the point. The problem we're having these days is we're getting it too quickly because of climate change. Right, so in the, in, in the same way that uh, alcoholic strength is, is a, a proxy for climate change, it's also a proxy for fl the flavoursomeness of yes. the wine. It has to have to go to a certain level uh, in order to get the flavours you need. Those, those amazing organic chemicals which mimic the organic chemistry of certain, um, certain living things. Exactly. Right, uh, got it. It, that exactly, uh, it, is a, it is a reasonable proxy. It's a reasonable proxy to assume that sugar accumulation equals phenolic ripeness in grapes. Phenolic rightness, that's another new phrase. And congratulations, Rich. That's 17 minutes now before you've let me have a swig of the uh, <laughs> of the ruddy stuff. So I'm going to. Okay. Uh, I'm not even asking for permission this time. I'm just going to do it. Beaujolais Village. Not much on the nose, I don't think. I haven't got a cold or anything. Or the dreaded vid. I think this is maybe a cherry or something. Do you find it fruity? Is it red fruit? Black fruits? Is it dark and serious? Is it red? I mean, it could be red and serious, but for me, it's... Well, you tell me. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going, well, I, well, the first thing I heard, thought was cherries, so I suppose red fruit. Uh, not too tanniny, as we expected, actually. But there is a little bit of tannin there. Um, it's quite, quite nice, and it is light. I mean, maybe maybe it's because I know it's a light wine, but it does feel like something that, you know, particularly in, a, in, a day, in the daytime, for a lunch, for example, you might not want that heaviness, that high alcohol, that high tannin, that, that beefiness. It is quite... I wouldn't say refreshing, but it's uh, tasty. I agree, and basically we're tasting a Beaujolais village, which is a kind of good, kind of popular, you know, we see plenty of that in the supermarkets. Oh, red fruit, definitely. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, red fruit, definitely. Well done. Yeah, on the, the after. Red fruit ometer tick. Um, absolutely, very, it's raspberries and red cherries, isn't it? Oh, is it? Yeah, I, made, I think so. I've got the cherry. Red cherries, I, I think so. Stylistically, all the point here is, it's fruity, it's relatively smooth, it's a little bit bland. A lot yeah. of Beaujolais Village is a bit bland. Remember, bland equals 
cream and beige colours in Marks and Spencers across our land, you know, which the British people love. So there's certain, could argue there's a certain safety in this style of wine. But also, yeah, true. Yeah, no, I get that. No, that's right. There's not, no, no one's going to be offended by this wine. Is, that's what I'm saying. saying. It's yeah. a bit of a Marks and Spencers wine, I think, in a, in a way. The other reason I chose it, yeah, it is quite on the light side. Alcohol is 13%. Beaujolais, by the way, is in central France. Going back to climate, yeah. the climate in central France can be very warm, but it's not guaranteed warm. It's not the Mediterranean. It can be cloudy. You can get a bit of rain. That lack of guaranteed chaleur, heat, means you often end up with something that is a bit medium in alcohol, which is what we've got here. The great variety, by the way, of Beaujolais is one called Gamay, G-A-M-A-Y. Without getting too geeky on, a fundamental reason a lot of people have a problem with red wines, particularly if they, you know, like myself, generally now got a slight problem with heaviness, tiredness, headaches, tannin. My mate Andy is another one. He thinks he's allergic to tannin. I think he probably is too. He just can't go to red wines with any tannin. He gets headaches from it, maybe some allergy to it. In Beaujolais, they do something specific. But in summary, because it's too geeky to go into the detail, what they do is... They do something where they don't extract the tannin in the usual way that most red wines are made. So they don't sit the wine with its, they don't crush the grapes and then ferment the wine, sitting the wine with the juice and the skins just sitting there. They'll actually, they'll actually do something involving carbon dioxide and an oxygen-free environment, which actually causes the grapes to split, the, white, the juice to pour out, lovely fruity flavours to come out but without any tannin coming out because tannin actually this is an easy point to understand tannin is only really extracted at the end of winemaking when the alcohol is near to your maximum so this is what 13% alcohol this wine yeah if they were doing conventional winemaking with this wine most of the tannins would come out towards the end of winemaking because alcohol is a solvent which extracts the compound of tannins from the grape skins. If you don't have alcohol, you don't really get much tannin. Whereas in Beaujolais, what they do is they grab the flavor, the fruity flavors, at a lower alcohol level during the fermentation, which means the tannins aren't extracted. They then get rid of the skins, ergo, the tannins are still in the skins rather than in the wine, haven't been extracted, and you end up with a low tannin wine. Please, dear listener, don't be put off by the fact that Rich says, and this is easy to understand, he is in no way mansplaining at this point. Uh, <laughs> you're comforting me by saying, and this is easy to stand, not like the other stuff, but I didn't understand it. No, I'll tell you what else I, I just want to point out is, what I want to get from the wine list, uh, and we got this sort of sorted right at the beginning, is, is to be able to, with confidence, read through a wine list. Now, I'll never be as knowledgeable as Rich, or anybody who's studied wine, but I can ask questions such as, so what does everyone fancy? It's lunch, would everyone fancy a lighter red, like Beaujolais, or should we have something a little bit more full, a bit more alcoholic? And asking these questions of my guests, if I'm ordering the wine, I think it's quite nice, because you can make them part of the process of choosing the wine, and you can ask the right questions to get the right wine. And this is very much helping in my, in my, in my, uh, my aim to be able to confidently read a wine Every stage is helping. And the background stuff about how it's made is fascinating as well. Do to burst your balloon, Oliver? If you saw on a wine list a Beaujolais that said Morgan, Côte de Puis, Beaujolais, Puis, P-U-I, Côte de Puis, that would be stylistically a very different type of Beaujolais. Just to annoy you, I know you're thinking. Hey, I know, I know. Every I can. Time I think I've got it. You're going. Just hold it back there, sunshine. No, no. Just making the point of, if you see an all, if a wine labelled is Beaujolais or Beaujolais Village, it's going to be soft and relatively straightforward. 
if it's Beaujolais but with fancy names after it like Morgan or Moulin Avant, you know, the wind, min, windmill and other ones, they are a bit more complex and they deliberately do a bit more conventional winemaking so they can grab some more tannin to make slightly more structured wines with a higher tannic profile. But for Beaujolais, ordinary Beaujolais and Beaujolais plus the word village, we're talking this style of quite soft fruity wine. And it's a good one. It's a light wine. And you made a really good point earlier. Oh, it's a wine. You, just, you know, we want to drink a bottle of this. We're sharing this at lunchtime. We still want to function for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, really helpful. Yeah. So let's have a Beaujolais or Beaujolais village, not have something too heavy. It's just smooth, smooth, very pleasant Marks and Spencer's um, comestible. It's the missionary position of wine. Um, you, yes, I suppose one could put it like that. <laughs> Oliver Turnbull. Nothing too, uh, nothing too fruity uh, in that sense. Yes, it's good, straight, Mr. and Mrs., missionary, and match of the day, and good night, dear. Wine. The reason I wanted to go for the Cote de Rhone, although it sounds a bit boring, and we discussed one a bit in the first season, it's really, in terms of understanding red wine, we're, geographically, we're not going far, very far. We're going from just north of Lyon in central France to maybe 100 miles south of Lyon. Um, into the Rhone Valley. The point is, we're changing. Two things are changing. The climate is changing. We're going from a kind of middling, moderate climate in Beaujolais to definitely a warmer, more reliably sunny every day in the summer climate that you get in the southern France. So we've got a warm climate and we've got a different grape variety. Another one beginning with G, it's Grenache. Oh, yeah. Before it was Gamay. So why is this relevant to our little mini flight of red wines? Well, you tell me all. The climate's changed, so what's could potentially change? You're expecting, all things being equal, there to be a greater alcohol content and potentially a greater tannin content. So it won't feel quite as fresh and um, light and neutral and unoffensive. Maybe something going on there, a bit more complexity uh, and a bit more interest, potentially. I'm gonna have a sip now, again, I've lost my discipline. I'm not. Uh, I'm not waiting for permission. Normally, you're all over me. Wow! Richard takes a good glug, puts his nose in the glass. I do the same. Oh God! Much more on the nose. Actually, we're not looking, talking about high levels of tannins coming from Grenache. A basic Cote de Rhone, such as this, will be predominantly Grenache, but we'll have other great varieties that will contribute a bit of tannin, like Syrah, and a, and a great called Morved. And the reason. They are blended in under appellation rules. You must blend them in a bit. Is to is to ensure that these wines have enough structure. Because if you just had 100% Grenache from okay fruit from an okay vineyard, it could just be a little bit kind of wishy-washy. Uh -huh. What you would have is the sugar ripening of the grapes. Because guess what? Grenache is a thin-skinned grape variety. Uh -huh. Which means often it's a bit paler, although this wine probably looks the same colour. They all, all look they the all same. Look the same. Yeah, they probably because really, yeah. it's got other things like Syrah giving it colour in the blend. But if you look at single Grenache vines, often a little bit paler, because they have a thinner skin. Of course, it's a thinner skin, which means they have lower levels of tannin. But the higher sugar levels we get here are from a thin skin. You think about it, a grape with a thin skin in a warm climate is going to accumulate sugars as it ripens very, very quickly because this hasn't got thick skin to, you know, to, to kind of shake off the, protect against the heat. So the cells of that grape are getting very, very hot very quickly. The sugar builds up very, very quickly. Grenache has a tendency to booze in us. Aha, aha. Is this still 13%? 
No, wrong. 14%. So, yeah. So, there we go. It's a basic, it's a quite a simple wine. But the reason we, again, wanted to show you that is the effect of climate. Really, I mean, okay, it's a different grape variety. It's not Gamay. But, really, it's the, it's the warmth of the vineyard, which is automatically giving us 14%. Funnily enough, I may have said this in season one, when Appalachian Controle was introduced nearly 100 years ago, Chateauneuf du Pape, which is one of the top crew Appalachians of the Southern Rhone, the stipulation was you can only be a Chateauneuf du Pape if you achieve a minimum alcohol of 12.5%. <laughs> These days, oh, they're struggling to keep them under 15. Wow. Yeah, that does sound extreme. Well, I like it. I'm, I'm almost feeling that this is earthier than fruitier. It feels less fruity and more earthy. I guess that's what I'm saying. And a bit more tanniny. And, and loads more to smell. And I really like it. Lovely red fruits. A little bit aromatic. So, yeah, a little bit of violet, I think, which is nice. But I think what you really... I really feel here, and it goes with the ripeness. It goes with the sugar levels. It goes with the alcohol. Don't you feel... If you go back and sip wine one... Doesn't it? Fit, doesn't wine too just feel fuller in the mouth? Oh, the body. One hundred percent. Then absolutely. I, I um, I've actually finished wine one, but I remember it well. And it wasn't actually. Um, oh, you've got a bit left. Well done. Oh, oh. I knew Oliver would swig wine one, so I'd left you some. <laughs> no, we totally. have to come. We have to come back. But but, but 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 important point. That doesn't mean the Beaujolais is watery and weak and wispy. No no no. Right. Different style. It's a different style. There is more flavour in the red, but that doesn't make it better. It makes it more appropriate for maybe a slightly heavy meal or an evening drink or whatever. This is very helpful. Very helpful, Rich. Uh, in, 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 I mean, what you've got to do really with a wine list, however large it is, you've got to narrow it down, having it to a few choices, and then some key questions that you can ask your guests. As, as to what they're into and then it's done and it's not about showing off what it really is about and the French know this better than we do Italians most Europeans in fact is, is giving your guests the best time you possibly can with the resources that you have I think that's what it's all about and so knowing the wine list that's exactly what I think it's about it's not saying oh I know a lot about wine which uh, a snob would want to do it's all about trying to give the people that you're with the best experience you can, given the food, the circumstance, their personal taste, etc. It's about being a good guide, isn't it? It's a bit like, you know, if you go to, you know, any kind of stately home or national trust property or something, you want someone to, to be a nice guide. It doesn't mean they know everything about it. No. Or they're showing off. No. They want to indicate to you, give you enough information to make sure you have a good time. Well, I went round the Globe Theatre uh, and this, I think she might have been a frustrated actress. Uh, but she showed us round, and her love for the place mm. shone through. Yeah. So she had all these facts and figures, and she had all these funny tales, and some were funny, you know, some were a bit laboured, but her love for the place and her enthusiasm uh, made it such an enjoyable event. She did an absolutely fabulous job. I went round with my brother and my sister, and I was a bit cynical, because I don't want to be a tourist in London, because of course you've been in London for so many years, you think, I know London. Oh, I know everything. I, I happily, yeah, <laughs> I happily wallowed in the arms of this lady. Uh, she took us around the globe, and it wasn't, I know loads about you, it was, I love the globe, I want to share this with you. <laughs> Wonderful. Fantastic. Do you have a preference out of the two? Do you know what? The interesting thing is I don't, because like I said before, they're different, but I would have probably the Beaujolais in my garden with my wife and kids and neighbours if they were around, if you were around with your lovely wife, uh, just a light glass, um, potentially before lunch or before 
um, try to find a way to not do any gardening. <laughs> and I would have something like this, maybe with a bit, a bit of supper, uh, yeah. a bit of light supper later on. They both taste lovely and they both taste different. I'm really starting to get this red thing in, in only, oh, I don't know, 35 minutes we're in. Wine number three is from Sicily. So we're being highly European and I want us to go outside Europe and we will with wine number four. But I also want, again, to look, remember our guide for this very much is your curiosity in red wine, your relative naivety in red wine, and also Gordon's wine list and the way they organize their red wines on the list, which is interesting. And under the fuller category of red wine, we have a Nero Davila, which is wine number three. Let's have a look. You make a good point there as well, in that you're like a guide to me on this evening, but then Gordon's is a guide for you. So it's like um, the confidence you have is transferred from the vineyard to Gordon's, and we trust Gordon's, so we know we're going to have a good selection. I trust you, and it's that portability of confidence that you're going to get a, a decent wine. So, by the way, the Cote du Rhone, you probably want to know the year, and yeah. that's 2021. 21, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Nero Davila. Uh, it's the same, 2021. Just to repeat, Beaujolais 2020, Cote d'Orone 21, Nero Davila 21, so all very young wines. So this one's not going to be super tanny, otherwise they'd have laid it down. Thank they? you, Oliver. There you go. Exactly. So would we expect high tannins in a 21 that are selling in a reputable, distinguished place like Gordon's Wabat? Of course not. Nero Davila. So first of all, I'll just describe this wine to me. You're tasting, what's it like? Well, it's not crazy tanniny, but, but they're definitely there. Very fruity, very full flavour. What does it say about the wine, Ol? Christmas cake spice, and I get that, and black cherry jam. So we've had quite a lot of cherry this evening. Hmm. Uh, but to be fair, Christmas cake spice could just mean um, nutmeg or cinnamon. Rather than sort of raisins and cake and marzipan. In terms of what we're tasting and thinking about the red wine making, well, let's, let's break it down a tiny bit. Does it taste as alcoholic as the Cote d'Aron, which was 14%? It tastes alcoholic, it tastes very full, and it tastes, there's a, a bit of a fruit bomb going on there, which is lovely. It's not heavy, I really like this one as well. So what's surprising me is the smoothness of it. You get a smoothness of very rich, uh, well, all I can say is fruitiness, but very intense, that's what I'm trying to say. What there really is here, Fundamentally, again, the climate, again, we've gone from southern France to Sicily. That's quite a way, actually. You know, in latitude terms, we've gone from sort of 43 degrees north um, to 39 degrees north. You know, OK, so that's quite a distance, actually. I mean, we're probably, we need to check our stats again. We're probably in the 30s rather than the 40s latitude here. And it just means in a place like Sicily, how perfect is it for making red wine? Because... You're not going to have a problem with unripe tannins. And by the way, I'll have another sip of this wine. I'm running low. I mean, please, dear listener, don't think that we're having four glasses here. Have uh, a sip of wine. No, 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 I've, I've got enough. Because yeah. I knew there would be but, other but, things to explore. Push the wine onto your gums. Enjoy the wine. Let it go down the hatch. And do you feel a lovely, a little bit of tannic grip afterwards? And does that bother you? Because there's a reasonable amount of tannin here in this wine. No, it doesn't bother me. I, I, I now know what too much tannin is. And some of the wines we've tasted have fallen in that category. This one definitely does not. I just love its fruitiness. It doesn't feel heavy. It doesn't feel headachey, hangover. It just feels um, fruity and delicious, actually. It's not what I expected. And no, the tannins don't put me off at all. Great, because because kind of medium level of tannins, but more tannins than the Beaujolais. 
a bit more similar tannin, a bit more than the, than the Cote d'Iron, I think. But again, only medium within the grand scheme of tannins world, as it were. But, sorry, the point is, you've already said it. It is the ripeness of the fruit, because at this latitude, it's not just is the fruit ripe, but it's really ripe, isn't it? It's almost getting towards cooked fruits, almost ah, going towards baked plums now, and lovely things like that. Up until this very second, I had no idea what you meant when you said does the fruit taste ripe, ripe, ripe in a wine context. Obviously, I know what ripe fruit looks like, but I get it completely now. That is a mouthful of deliciousness which has been made with ripe fruit because it's, yeah, like you say, it, it feels like it's ready for cooking, that fruit. It is. It's, it's those, those plums that get so almost extra ripe in a really warm summer, they get really sticky and gorgeous and succulent. They want to go into a pie, or, or rather they'll be like the plums are when they come yes. out once they've been cooked. Yes. I love the way fruits. you say succulent, by the way. Succulent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, and again, this is the level of fruit ripeness, of grape ripeness, that you're getting in Sicily, even more so than in uh, southern France, and definitely more so than in Beaujolais which stylistically is giving us very different fruit profile in the red wines that we're tasting. And what's the alcohol here? Uh, that's 14 as well. Yeah. I yeah. guess it would be, because in Sicily it would be pretty difficult, in a way, to not have a wine that was 14%, because when your fruit is that ripe, surely your sugar levels in the, in the grapes in the vineyard must be high too. And Sicily is about as hot as it gets in Europe, remember. And the more you taste red wine, if you want to analyse it or think about it, Often a big driving factor for people as to whether they like the wine or not, even if they're not analysing the wine is, if the fruit is only just ripe or even a touch underripe, the chances are they're not going to like it. So in terms of a, a crowd pleaser or a dead cert, may not be the most complex wine in the world, but in terms of having ripeness, body, bit of alcohol, lovely red and black fruit flavours, a wine like Nero Davila, it's kind of like Sicily's Beaujolais really, but it's Beaujolais in a different climate, so it's kind of given. Ah, nice. it's, it's not the same grape variety, so it's not literally Beaujolais in Sicily, but stylistically, it's similar. It's a really fruity wine with relatively low tannins and is for early drinking, and not for age, wines that are not for aging, but it's done in a warmer climate. Delicious red wine, I think. I agree, and I suppose there's a, a reason why they use the word ripe, because with ripe uh, comes the connotation of it the balance being right, it'd be ready. Ripe is ready, isn't it? Exactly. So a ripe fruit is ready for cooking, so why wouldn't a ripe fruit be ready for winemaking? Lovely, lovely. Look, uh, so far, I know we've got one to go, which I'm naturally even more excited than at the beginning. Um, this is really working for me. This is really making a difference to my appreciation of red wine. Let's see what the next one's like. Let's, let's hope it's not hopeless. Okay, all. wine number four. Yes, yes. Outside Europe, South Africa. We've That's been here before. Nice. We discussed Pinotage, if you remember, the end of Richard Banfield's ep, uh, ep, episode five, we gave South Africa a big cheers for that incredible £4.25 pinotage from Lidl. Still can't get over those prices. In terms of your specific red wine lesson, we are here in South Africa. This is um, Syrah, which is a really, can I just say, Syrah is right out, out there. I, I think it's one of the truly great, what I call international black grape varieties. Its spiritual home is France, actually, northern Rome, a bit further up from Côte d'Irene where we were earlier. But you find amazing Syrah, California, Australia, New Zealand. The point is, why do I think it's such a great black grape variety? Because I think it has a certain kind of power. 
quite often. I mean, not that strength is beauty, but there's a certain solidness about Syrah that is often quite attractive. When it's a little bit marginal in terms of you're only just ripening it, it's one of these great varieties, again, you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to ripen it probably that well in Beaujolais. The Northern Rhone, it's spiritual home, it's just about where you can ripen it. So again, some great varieties will ripen in moderate climates and they will also ripen in warmer climates. When you ripen Syrah in a warmer climate, it becomes quite big and, and jammy, which we experienced a bit with our Nero Davila. That's the grape variety, that's like sort of jamminess, lovely fruitiness. Of course, famously, Syrah in a warm climate is called Shiraz in Australia, and we've already discussed that in, in season one. To me, Syrah is a wonderful grape variety because it's quite structured. The tannins are normally on the high side, ditto the acidity. It's often got a kind of black plum profile. Tannins, if extracted, going back to the winemaking, if the, ta if the winemaker wants to extract lots of tannins, by making sure the, the skins are really in contact with the wine a lot, they'll do physical things. They literally push the skin into the wine to extract more tannins. Oh, wow. They do lots of stuff like this. Cheeky. Yep. They call it punching down and pumping over different ways of ex extraction techniques, really, to get the, the, as much tannin out of the wine. That's if they want to do it. You know, this bottle of South African Shiraz is 40-something pounds. 46. 46 yeah. in Gordons. Look, that's 46 pounds, but this is on trade, remember, in central London. If we're buying this probably in a supermarket or a wine shop, we'd be talking 15 pounds. It's not mad, is it? No. <coughs> I mean, if it's a real treat. If uh, it's good, yeah. if it's good. So anyway, let's give it a go. First thing I'd say, Ol, compared with the other wines, any difference in appearance? Syrah's often really quite dense and dark. Is it dark? It's or? very dark. I'm, it's very difficult to tell in here because we're in a tunnel lit by about seven candles, which is about 1.5 watt of a, <laughs> of a bulb. So when I walked in here trying to find you, I shook the hand of a man who looks a bit like you, but was definitely not you, who looked at me most terrified. It smells a lovely and very fruity. Isn't the first thing to say compared with the, the first three wines we've tasted is that we've got aromas really hopping out the glass here. Smells more interesting than the other wines, doesn't it? I agree. I just set it up the candle actually and it is a lot deeper than the others. And I'm very pleased to report tannins aren't bothering me. I think maybe is it more tanniny than the Nero Diablo? Uh, uh, maybe if I had to gun to my head. But it's... Um, there seems to be a sourness to it, which there wasn't on the Nero. Sour, plum, good sourness, I'd say. Definitely tastes, definitely tastes plummy. I'd say red plum, black plummy plum. Totally. Plum is the fruit. It's got lovely, fresh acidity. And what I'm so pleased about all is that you're, you're, the tannins are not bothering you because the tannins have gone a step up here. Yeah, yeah. That we're kind of, in WSET panels, we're kind of medium plus tannins. So we're not quite at nose-bleeding Barolo tannins. But the tannins are on the high side. My gums, as I'm speaking to you now, are really drying out. I'm just going to gum it. Hang on. It doesn't mean that uh, this, you know, the wine's upsetting me because of that. It's just a characteristic of the wine. But going back to something you picked up in previous Epsol, this question about balance, remember, it's not about if you've got all these variables in the wine, like acidity, alcohol, fruit, tannin level, body... It's not what are they individually, but is the wine balanced overall? That's the most important yep. thing. That's what makes it pleasing. Yep. Is this wine balanced? I am going to say that I liked the Nero Davola more than this because for me, the tannins are dominating here. 
Whereas in the other wine, the fruit was dominating and I found that more pleasant. I don't know whether that means this one is not balanced or it's just not to my taste. Almost certainly the latter. The latter, yeah. Definitely the latter. It's not to your taste. This is a different style of red wine. This is, this is a more serious red wine. This is the kind of red wine that might potentially give you a headache if you, yeah, had, that's what I was if you had two or three glasses of this. me off by association. Maybe, but certainly my friend Andy, who's, as I said earlier, has a problem with tannins. I wouldn't dream of giving him a glass of this. Yeah. If this would send him into a coma if he had a glass or two of this. Whereas going back to the Nero Davler, it's that softer, fruitier style. Still with some tannic presence, but less. Yeah. Here the tannins are making a bit more of a statement. That is coming from A, the grape variety, because it's Syrah. And Syrah is a noble grape variety. It has a great potential for aging. This wine, I think, would probably be okay for another three to five years. It would soften, the tannins would definitely soften, but it's not gonna be a great legendary wine that's gonna taste great in 20 years. Don't think the fruit concentration is that big. I mean, remember, to, to age a wine for 20 years, you've got to have incredible fruit concentration ah, right, to begin with. Because uh, is that gonna fade every time? Or yeah, yeah, or yeah. Change or? Exactly. So this thing about fruit and getting things in alignment is really important. If you're going to age a wine, and this is really important. A lot of people think, well, I've got a good wine, I'm going to lie it down, lay it down, fine. But you've either got to know the wine because you've tasted it, or you really trust the person that's told you that. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. Because the risk is, if you lay wine down, or lie wine down, and the fruit isn't incredibly beautifully concentrated from an amazing season of ripening, I hasten to add, by the time you get that wine out 10 years later, particularly if it's a, had high tannins when it was young, say it was Cabernet Sauvignon, or maybe Syrah like this one, and the tannins needed to soften over time, by the time you taste that wine, if the fruit concentration wasn't intense to begin with, the fruit would have faded, you'll end up with a vegetal kind of watery vegetable wine that just tastes tanny, tannin, tanniny, and probably a bit oaky, because they'll have matured it for a couple of years in oak before bottling it to start the softening of the tannins process. And you'll See have what I mean? to pay for uh, 10, 15 years of, uh, of warehousing. Exactly, well, yeah. exactly. This is what makes me anxious. Uh, normally I'm anxious about things and worry too much, but anxious if I was a winemaker. So many things you've got to get right or it all messes up. That, that, that's, the real, that's the real worry. It's a chain is only as strong as its weakest link kind of terror. Totally. Whereas you can have a fairly decent cricket team with a couple of absolute journeymen in it as I found out as captain of 4E cricket team, circa <laughs> 1978. It was 1978. My, uh, my run average that uh, season? Was that when it was 0.6666? Uh, I wish. Uh, sadly, my innings is about one, zero, zero, not outs, zero. Leads <laughs> average of 0.33. Ah. Uh, yeah, that's not good. That's no. not good. And yet we did quite well as a team. Anyway, my point being that a wine like that, I would be the uh, I would be the lack of fruit which would ruin the wine, despite the tannins and the acidity and the alcohol being in perfect balance. I get it. I get why this is a nice wine. I am. I mean, you haven't asked me what my favourite would be. I think maybe you were going to, but uh, I don't think I can see too far past the Nero de Vola. And now I have something to look out for on the wine list as well, which is good. Well, that's a great step forward. And I think the other point we should make as well, Ol, we are tasting red wines in isolation here. A wine like this Syrah from South Africa, which is a bigger wine, a more structured wine, with the higher levels of tannin, the higher level of acidity. The fruit is there, but the tannins are definitely more evident. 
So it's less naturally appealing as a fruity kind of easygoing red wine. These wines need food. And, and, and we are, you know, we're back to my bet noir of a subject, which is food and wine pairing, which we did in season one. And, you know, I'm not mad on that overly described, overly prescriptive subject. Well, I think you mean food generally, don't you? It mean needs something else. It yes. Needs yes. You're not saying it needs yeah. beef necessarily. No, 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 no. I'm not telling you. No, no, so no. So there's an interesting thing that came with that. I want to bring you up on it just before I forget. When you're saying it wouldn't immediately appeal, it feels to me like you're saying there is something of an acquired taste to tannins. A little bit like uh, whiskey, which um, I remember my father giving me my first glass of whiskey, which of course you pretend to like when your dad gives it. You oh know, yeah, absolutely hated it because it's so, uh, it's so sort of brutal, so brutal on a, on a young, on a young How taste powerful. Yeah, um, and, and and I became came to appreciate it. Is that something with a very full-bodied, high tannin, high alcohol red wine that is the case as well, and that my mouth, my palate needs some education to it? That's a really fair question. I personally don't think. Wines with high levels of tannins are ever great tasted by themselves. Oh, that's an interesting one. So, and one thing I do totally subscribe to when it comes to food and wine pairing, and we do explore this at work with when we do food and wine workshops at levels one and two, where food and wine pairing is a bit more of a focus than at the higher levels, for example, is salt. In fact, all. I've got an idea. We're tasting the wine number four again, the South African Syrah, but just want to not go into a food and wine type diversion too much, but I do, picking up the brilliant points that you made, that you felt that the structure of the red wine, the tannins in particular, were perhaps getting in the way of the fruit, which made you, you think that that glass of red wine was perhaps less accessible, less friendly than particularly the Nero Davila. Totally agree. I just suggested, well, once you get into highly structured red wines with high acidity and high tannins that this South African Syrah has from Swatland, I'm not saying you have to have these wines with food, but they benefit from having food with them. So what I want to do now, you, you know exactly what that South African Syrah tasted like by itself without any food. We've now got some, can you just describe the cheese and what we've got to, to taste it with? Yeah, so we've gone with what um, is recommended by um, the folk at Gordon's, and it's an Emmental, so a Swiss Emmental, which I love anyway, that lovely oily Emmental, with no bubbles in, but it is infused with chilli. So there's what my son would describe as some business going on uh, with the food. Uh, and uh, I know you've taken a nibble already, and you say you can taste the chilli. What do we do? <laughs> I'm at a loss. Really simple. Yeah. Have a very quick sip of the wine. Oh, yes without the food, before the food, yep. to remind yourself, I think you know already, that you find this um, syrup a little bit tough in the glass. Yeah, of the I mean, not to a real fault, but yes, yeah. a little bit. To a degree, yeah. to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Then what? <laughs> now, <laughs> now, take some cheese. Yeah. In my mouth. In your mouth. Oh, right. And... Enjoy that morsel of cheese, which I'm sure you will. Oh yeah! And then, pretty quickly, if not simultaneously, get that wine in as in your in your gob as well. Okay. This reminds me of the food episode in season one. Mm-hmm. A logistical nightmare, but a logistical nightmare. Uh, but worth doing again oh, yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any difference? <laughs> yeah, there is actually. I've got cheese and wine in my mouth at the same time, which seems like it's not right. The cheese is very. Um, tasty in the fact that it's, it's nice to taste but there's a lot of taste going on and the chili is quite noticeable 
So I'm going to take another, another little sip of wine. Yeah. I would not normally recommend chili with wine, but what I want to know is all, do you find the tannins any different? Yes. And what, how are they different when you have they, it with they, the cheese? I don't want to say neutralised, because neutralised sort of implies milk of magnesia when you've had too much acid, but they're sort of calmed mm. by the cheese. So I'm still getting the niceness of the wine, the fruitiness, the full-bodiedness, the, the alcoholic hit. But I'm also enjoying, I think maybe the chili's going a bit too far, actually. The chili is, is the black mark in a way. It's a bit dominating, yeah. you know? The general point is, and we're only just illustrating a point, we're not doing a serious tasting or pairing here, but that that highly tannic profile of the syrup has been totally altered by the presence of the cheese. It's the saltiness in the cheese that is really balancing out that those tannins are a bit harsh when we had the wine by itself. And I think this is now a really palatable wine. Just making the point, I'm not doing, we're not doing a food pairing, but this pretty tannic, more complex red wine, the Syrah that we've had on the Fighter 4, just clearly is now shining when we have it with food. No, I agree. What's it doing though? I, I use the word neutralising and that, that doesn't feel right. It's not as if tannins are a bad thing, but what it, it, it sort of calms them maybe. Is the right way to describe it. It's all to do with, obviously, the ability of our tongues and our brains to interpret the signals we're getting from the food and the wine. And basically, it's a balancing act, really. I think it's not a neutralising effect. I think we're balancing tannins here with saltiness in food. That's a very helpful reminder of things to do. And that's why, in Italy, where you get Barolo made from Nebbiolo with these incredibly high, aggressive tannins, the food culture is just oriented beautifully to the wines. You get lots of quite meaty, even the vegetarian food is quite salty and will really go well with the tannins. It will calm down, as you said, balance the effects of tannins through food. And some of the greatest wines have to be appreciated with appropriate food. And that's what kind of the point we're making here. I think you've hit the nail on the head several times. The three Bs, balance, balance and balance. No, I get it. Um, my preaching of red wines, has gone through the roof, actually, to the point where it's almost a, a life change, not life changing <laughs> sense of road to Damascus. But I, I now hereby declare uh, that I will um, not just stick to white wines, whether, whether I'm in a restaurant, a dinner party, or just having a, a, a chilled glass with Mrs. T. Um, I will now open myself up to this whole world that I've been missing out on. Thank you, Richard. Happy days. Oliver, here is, let's drink to red wine, red wine, simply red. Cheers to you, simply red. Simply red. Cheers, Rich. Cheers, Oliver.